did you find this? Fuck Aaron Rodgers. I said <laughs> fuck Aaron Rodgers. Uh, and we're you talking say, about. Could you say that again? I said fuck Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. Because we were talking about Garrett Wilson versus Chris Olave in Dynasty. And I think, I, I can see both sides of the argument here, but I think the two ships in the night passing each other, I think Chris Olave is going to gain more value by the end of next season than, Chris, than Garrett Wilson. I don't I disagree. agree with that. Yeah. I love Olave. They're both, tied, they're both tied to subpar quarterbacks, but the, they're, and both teams are scrambling. So we'll see. How long? Wait, does uh does Derek Carr have? He was only signed to a one year contract, right? Or no, he's got one more. They got they own like forty million this year. Oh They're... crap! Ryan, I thought you had the details of Derek Carr's contract extension tattooed on your forearm. Dude, you you have his phone number. Just text him and ask him. It's on the back of my forearm, so I can't read it like <laughs> live. No, it was it was on his. At, I have to look in a mirror. It was his. Uh, it was his. <laughs> pre-robot arm so yeah he signed a four-year 150 million dollar contract <laughs> <laughs> it's all right oh like, this is re- his is redemption year all right guys come on i'm God i'm gonna him. go on the i'm gonna go on the bandwagon again i still because olave is gonna be there and uh who's that speedster shaheed uh, baby yeah shaheed he's still gonna be there jimmy graham oh, oh no he's, oh, he's dude, a bear he's Never gonna mind. catch a couple touchdowns again Okay, all right. I, I do want to play a game of what his dead cap is for next year. I want you guys to guess a number, and I will tell you higher or lower. Derek Carr's? Yeah, his dead cap for 2024. 18 mil. Ryan? 24. Okay, Ryan, you have to double that number. Holy what? shit. 48. His dead cap is $52 million. Holy shit. How many Taysom Hills what? is that? <laughs> like 20. <laughs> the whole team. <laughs> Holy fuck. Wow. Do you wonder why they're in cap hell? They have to literally get rid of that whole roster. It's going to be Derek Carr in the center. The, the fact that they were like, all right, we can only kick this can so far down the road. <laughs> I've got it. Derek Carr. <laughs> I guarantee you the owner's just going to sell the company or the, the franchise. Oh, yeah. Just get stupid. They're like, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to go into finance. Boy. See you later. Wait, so Shane, does that mean uh, Kamara's gone then? I would imagine so. Um, let, me look at, let me look at Damn, his... I mean, out, outside of Kamara? Like, Who's going to pay Kamara? Nobody. No one. I mean, that's like the interesting part about this class. Like, I'll, I can talk about that when we get to like our buy-sell segment of like this rookie class in comparison to like the crusty vets. Because like, apparently this draft class sucks. I've only watched Blake Corum so far. Um, but the the market is like going to have an overturn, right? Like Joe Mixon is potentially going to be on a contract. Aaron Jones is going to potentially be gone. Saquon, Camara, Derek Henry, Derek Henry, Josh Tony, Jacobs, Tony Pollard. Tony Pollard. Like there's going to be some like money moves going around. Um, let me look at um, Austin Eckler. Yeah. Eckler. There's a lot. If they cut Camara post June 1st, they save $11.7 million and they are at minus $82 million. <laughs> well, that if they Jesus. cut Kamara, they only need to cut Alvin Kamara mm-hmm. five times to cover Derek Carr's dead cap. Yep. Bring him back. Cut him again. Um, yeah. All right. So, hey, episode 120, we're here. Get used to it. 
as Friday night, ladies' night, as per usual. And uh, we got some Super Bowl fallout. How about them? How about them Chiefs? I was hoping for double overtime. Honestly, I wanted to set the record. Um, and if you were lucky enough on FanDuel to smash like three hours before the game, they changed the line to 46 and a half. If you were lucky to smash that over because it was at 47 and a half before, you made some decent money. Vegas so good. They're fucking undefeated. That, that game was like, what, second or third longest in NFL history? It's up there, yeah. I believe so, but, yeah. But it did it not seem feel like, like a long though. game. Yeah, exactly. No. Like, it was a slog in the beginning, like defensively, but like I never felt like I was bored. I know like the people I was hanging out with were like, nothing is happening. I'm like, this is what we anticipated, right? Like we all pegged yeah. the the score being under a certain time period or a certain amount. I didn't think it would be that low. Like what was it, ten to nothing at half? Or yeah. ten three. Or ten three. Um, I did not think it would be that low, but it took it took a while for both those teams uh defenses to or their offenses to figure out the defense, yeah. Super Bowls usually start slow. Well, it's like, like a chess true. match, right? Like, nobody wants to, like, go out to an early lead and fuck themselves up, right? Right, right. And that's, CMC was like, this is a strategic fumble. <laughs> hey, they did fumble again, so. Yeah. And I love how they fired the defensive coordinator. Like, he literally had nothing to do with the reason they lost. Like, McCaffrey fumbled. Uh, what else happened? Um it, none Moody of it was missed. like his fault. Yeah, Moody missed the extra point. That game would have never went to overtime if he wouldn't. If he would have made that. I think it's one of those instances of when you're in your life and you get to the point every time, and you're like, "We finally did it. We finally got to the dance." And then when you have to go to the dance and do your thing, you just forget, right? Like that's what yep. seemed like Kyle Shanahan did. We're like, I don't know. Like True. people say, like playoff blood is different. We're like the Chiefs have been there and they've done it numerous times. So like. It was nothing to them. Like that final play, like even though they were excited, you could tell like everybody's like sick. Yeah, this is gonna be a touchdown. It's like it's over. Goodbye. And it also just adds to Shanahan's like horrible Super Bowl record. Like, was that the third down ten point Super Bowl loss? And he even lost one by like down twenty five, right? He was up twenty five, yeah. Yeah, up twenty five. Yeah, and lost. Yeah. I mean, you gotta say like Sure, I agree to an extent. You can't argue about the record, but like he went against Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes twice. Like, yeah. come on. And, yeah, and I think that's the thing, right? I saw this post where like Patrick Mahomes is just the Jordan of this era, right? Like, there are teams that in any other world or any other circumstance do win the championship. They do enter the Pro Bowl. They do enter the Hall of Fame. But this motherfucker exists, and he's just like, hey, yeah. this is my world, and you're all living in it. And I choose that you do not have the thing that you want. I choose. I, I take it, right? Think about the quarterbacks that he's gone up against in the Super Bowl. So he's got Brady and Mahomes twice, and he's gone up against him with Matt Ryan, Jimmy Garoppolo, and Brock Purdy. Purdy did great, though. Like, I know people yeah. are, like, worried about it, but, like, that was one of the Christmas games that... Well, he lost, so he's so he's trash. He's a system yeah, quarterback. Yeah, he's ass. Don't give him any money. I don't, I'm not drafting him. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, how did we do on our props? Who won? Well, of course, just like all games that we play, Tony had to win. Yes. <laughs> uh, Tony had 15 correct. Shane had 14, and I had a measly 12. Uh, like that's a close bunch, though. That's a, that's a close. Because how many were there? 25? Yeah, 25. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good percentage. I thought I was fucked when the uh, when Reba McIntyre went over, dude. I was so pissed. <laughs> I was like, the only one that got that one. That's bullshit, it's, dude. It's like a uncut gems when the first part of the parlay is the tip off. So yeah, it's like here's where it spirals. Yep, and then nope. and then of course during the game, someone like tweeted out or whatever. I don't. I, who were you showing me, Tony? During the game, someone was like, "They're not counting the last uh, uh, and the home of brave. the brave." Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, "No." <laughs> it was awesome. So R.I.P. R.I.P. Yeah. to the 23-24 NFL season. It was a good run. Yeah. How do you how um, do you beat the Chiefs, man? Like how like we weren't like super in on it. Like we anticipated them making the playoffs and then they look like shit. But like how do you beat this team? Yeah. I did not think they I figured they would make it to the AFC championship like usual. I thought they were gonna lose. Okay, so you remember that episode of The Simpsons when Homer becomes a boxer and he has to fight the like Dredrick Tatum, <laughs> the Mike Tyson guy? And yeah. Mo Moe's like, visualize yourself winning. And Homer's standing in the ring and the announcer's like, a heart defect has fell Dredrick Tatum, <laughs> making tonight's winner Homer Simpson. <laughs> like you you beat the Chiefs if like Patrick Mahomes gets hurt. And sure. like and like a hurt so bad that like his bum ass ankle with the Toradol, he still won a Super Bowl on one fucking foot. So like, you need to like amputate. He needs to lose a limb. That's kind of why like I had like this weird feeling in my gut the day of, even though I like we did pin Kansas City to win. I was like, dude, he made it through the whole season, especially in playoffs, not being hurt. This is where it all falls apart. And then guess what? Just kept on trucking. Sure. He he is unfucking stoppable, man. Let it just, you know what? I I've I wanted San Francisco to win. Just let it ride, man. Just let him be the greatest of all time. And who the yeah. fuck cares? Because he seems like a it's, cool dude. It's cool to watch right. history unfold. I think yeah. that's the thing. Is is uh, before this season, I was like, you cannot beat Brady. And then just like looking at stats and watching that, I'm like, sorry, old man. Futures now. So I had yeah, a stat. Right? I had a I had a stat that I showed uh, Shane. I posted in the Discord. Ryan, I'm not sure you know. Um, in since 2021. No, since 2001, there's been 125 playoff drives in the fourth quarter with less than or equal to one score point difference. So, like, 125 drives where the trailing team had one last drive to either tie or go ahead in the game. And, yeah. like, success rate on those drives is 40%, which is pretty good, but it's the playoffs, so you figure it makes sense. Right. Brady was 5 for 11. Breeze was, uh, like... Five for ten, and Mahomes is seven for seven. What? He's perfect. Yeah, every time in the playoffs, he's been down a score in the fourth quarter with the ball. He's tied or taken the lead. That's mad <laughs> shit, dude. He's the next goat. He's going to be. He's, he's there. The, that's called clutch. Yeah, he's there. Yeah, that's winning. Time. I mean, that's the guy. Yeah, I mean, I do the, those games. Are, I love watching them. It's just great football. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so let's get into our bits. We got um, we got some stuff to talk. We've got buys and sells, and then we're taking a trip. So let's get after it. Ryan, who do you got this week? All right, guys. So I did a little like tape watching this week on some tight ends. I did like I did. I watched like three or four 
tapes um, on some guys, and one of the guys I watched this week was Theo Johnson. He looks pretty good. He kind of reminds me a little bit like Kyle Pitts. He's not as athletic, but he's got the same build. He's like 6'6", uh, 260. But anyways, so this week I found a tight end that I want to talk about. His name is Teo Johnson. Born in 1981 in British Columbia, Canada. He's a comparable um, stature to Theo Johnson, even though he has almost the same name. He's This guy was 6'7", 260 pounds. His measurables are pretty similar. So as I said, he's born in Canada. Uh, he was recruited to Stanford University as one of the highly touted two sports athletes in the country. He wanted to play quarterback, but... Um, just got buried in the depth chart wasn't wasn't uh, up to par for what the coaches wanted so they switched him to wide receiver to um get him on the field and it worked out great uh he was the pac 10 freshman of the year at wide receiver take in mind at wide receiver he's six seven 260 pounds that's two humans <laughs> right 79 catch 79 catches for 1032 yards and 15 touchdowns in 22 games. Sheesh. Yeah. After his sophomore season, um, the coach uh, wanted to switch him from wide receiver to tight end for the next season. But he did, and that he did, but that season he left school early and entered the NFL draft. So he ended up getting drafted by Oakland on round two, pick 63 overall in the 2003 draft. Okay. And there was a lot, a lot of high hopes for this guy uh, going into one of the reasons I looked at this guy last night is when I was looking at stuff on Wednesday for Theo Johnson, I I was thinking, oh my God, this guy's tape's so good. I hope he doesn't end up having a career like this guy, because this guy, his career just sank. He was one of those really good prospects, you know, a tight end in the second round. That means you're supposed to be really good. Right. And he ended up just being blah. Like he played for the Raiders for a while, Arizona. Yeah, so he he only was in the NFL for like four seasons. His third season was with the Cardinals, and he only had three catches for twenty nine yards. Um, Arnold yeah. Washington type beat. Yep, right. Overall, in his entire NFL career, only had twenty six receptions for two hundred and eighty eight yards and three touchdowns. Yeah, um, very very underwhelming career. But then he went on to play in the CFL and won the Grey Cup with the Calgary Stampeders in 2008, uh, the year after he left the NFL. And I hope this doesn't happen to Mr. Theo Johnson, but Mr. Teo Johnson was at a concert in Calgary uh, in 2009, and someone stabbed him in the right side like of his abdomen area and just Jeez. barely missed... like any of his vital shit and he survived let's Fuck. see he's his his family too was in the cfl and the nfl his brothers amani johnson and real johnson both played in both leagues but yeah i just wanted to look at this story and hope that it doesn't happen to theo johnson because i like theo johnson this year as a prospect for the nfl draft so let's hope his continued story of success in the draft doesn't end up like Mr. Teo Johnson. So you said he's six eight. Teo Johnson was yeah. six seven two sixty. Theo's like six six two. How 
Pixie. How mad do you have to be to stab someone that's six foot seven? Yeah, he's uh, six six plays, sixty-four. That's someone who plays video games, right? You're like, dude, if I stab this guy one time, he's just gonna die. Right. <laughs> right. Like that's not how it works. That's fucking terrifying. I don't I don't yeah. think I've ever been mad enough to stab someone that's six foot seven, two sixty. How many people have you stabbed? Maybe it was Shaq. <laughs> not enough. Listen. <laughs> I'm not stabbing Shaq. <laughs> he fucked up his uh, <laughs> his Papa John's order. Papa John fucked up my Papa yeah, John's right. order. I wanted the old world pepperoni. <laughs> oh yeah, dude, with the hot honey. All right, so, pepperoni. So Shane was kind enough to seed timed for me this week because I wrote something that I'm eventually gonna build out and and probably like submit to journals. So I have like a, I have a master's in history and, and I love this kind of stuff. And there's not a ton of football history out there as compared to like baseball or basketball or hockey. And so I, I did a little bit of research because those fuckers at JSTOR should have never given me a hundred free articles if I sign up with my email. But uh, that's the point we're at in society. So uh, I still get those free COVID, COVID letters. So I'm going to kind of talk about Sunday and and how it how it got us here so last week we we all sat in recliners couches and and living rooms and watched the super bowl and at the same time the uh u.s funded israeli army bombed rafa which is one of the most crowded locations on the gaza strip which is a territory that was already labeled as a refugee camp yeah but but tony he washes feet Jesus washes feet while this is happening. Um, My tax dollars went to pay for that commercial. It's God insane. bless America. Insane. Um, and and so this this horrendous like genocide is being paid for by our tax dollars. So I spent the next morning and day scrolling through like you know people's social media, Instagram stories, or whatever, and I saw the usual shit. Right? Oh, people are so stupid. Like, oh, they're they're bread and circuses, whatever. They give you bread and circuses to distract you while they're doing genocide, and and you know what? It it fucking chafed my ass like really bad. So so now we're here, and I'm gonna do this thing for us. Um, Ryan, you know this, and Shane, I think you have a pretty good idea of this by now. But organizing's a huge part of my life. I've done organizing at work. I do it in my personal life. It's always been a passion of mine. So. I think complaining about people watching the Super Bowl during a genocide is shitty if it's pointed towards the fans. As someone who's been like LOL sports ball as a person in her life, please shut the fuck up. Right? Yeah, really. <laughs> like... It doesn't make you cool to shit on stuff that people like. Get over it. So I'm an anarchist. I'm about as far bottom left on the political compass as it gets. So a lot of these people that I saw posting those things share a world with you, like a worldview with me, but they also at the same time couldn't tell anyone why Sam Laporta's 2023 season was so huge. Um, and and sure. that's fine. That's fine. Like we all like what we like and the world's so miserable that I don't really care if you like something I don't as long as it's not hurting anybody. So a lot of what I was trying to express to people is that alienating others because of their hobbies is fucking stupid and stands in the way of building like solidarity and collectivism as a whole. So I did a little small history project this week that I'm going to title Football, Understanding Community Kinship. We're going to hop in. I'm really just going to touch on a couple of different things. But like I said, I'm going to build this out into like a, a scholarly paper. And if anybody wants it, I'll send it out when it's done. We'll see. 
Um, so let's get started. I want to start with Michael Oriard's Cultural History of Football. He talks a lot about why there's so few history books about the game itself, and they come from a couple of different places. If you're writing about football, you're usually writing about like the mainstream middle class, and that's not like that doesn't get people hard when it comes to history research. And a lot of college people don't want to write about football because they are resentful for how much of their school's money goes towards football. Okay. I mean, I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah. And I'd even say that like we can extend that sense of priority as a root cause of people's anger towards the Super Bowl while Israel's committing fucking war crimes. But this author traces back even further. He discussed how football arose as a uniquely American cultural creation. So, like, India, cricket in India is different than the way the Brits played it when they introduced it to them, but that's still, like, adapted from you know, a colonizing society. American football is its own fucking monster. True. So if you just take it at this base level, it's clear that even the creation of the game itself lends more to notions of community and, like, working together than it gets credit for. Oriard said that football in the modern era is a, is a unique spectacle because the owners of the game assign meaning. Like... What region do I affiliate with? What team am I loyal to? How important are these milestones? Like, the real owners of meaning are the fans and consumers of football. It's it's a perception thing. You get what I'm saying? You cho- you choose to stab that six foot seven player in front of you at the concert. You, you made that call, you fucking Canadian. Um, so. The media has the power to frame narratives about the game that influence our thoughts about maybe a player or a team or a pop star in the stands. But the key here is that they can only do so much. Like fans are the owners of what the game itself means symbolically outside of what's played on the field. I think our love of fantasy football comes into play here where you root for players and not necessarily teams. Like you're making your own uh, judgment here, right? You're making your own meaning. Yeah, so I mean, that's that's how I enjoy it. I mean, that's how I met you guys, right? Like right. I have that the disconnect of like, yeah, I root for this team, but I really could give a shit. <laughs> right. I mean? Exactly. Exactly. So like um our understanding of what the game means to us, we create, which is a powerful realization when you consider like how different all these people are that fly the same flag and root for the same team. So my argument is that this has been, continues to be, and should be a forum to build collective community around the things that are bigger than the game itself. Uh, The relationship between collective, like us working together and building community and football is obvious on the surface. Like we root for a team, we root for one in our region or the ones our parents showed us growing up. In that sense, it's like an important cultural touchstone for society. It's passed down from generation to generation. My grandfather was a Bears fan. His children were Bears fans. My parents were Bears fans. If my kids want to sleep in my house, they're going to be Bears fans. <laughs> and, and, and we build the solidarity with other people that wear our same colors. But I wanted to talk about a few times where football has built something even more powerful. So we're going to start with the South in the 1920s. And uh, I want to talk about an article written by Andrew Doyle. Um, in that period, in that part of the country, the South was like, we're 50 years post-Reconstruction, and they're inching closer to a more mainstream place in American society. But at the same time, like all the old heads, the KKK, the heads of like Southern religions, 
and hating the North in general, still still holds control by the rich people, you know, and the rich people are the ones that tell everyone else what to think. College football was brought to the South from the North in the 1890s to be like, hey guys, we play this up North, you should do it too, it's pretty fun and cool. And old rich dudes were like, you're going to ruin our boys' brains by making them play this bougie-ass Northern sport? Actually, it probably would have worked, except for the fact that, like, people want to actually root for shit that takes place around them. So people were like, yeah, fuck the North, but also, like, you know, go dogs." Well, I mean, like, look at sports, right? Like, it doesn't matter, like, what team you're on. Like, you can talk to anybody and be like, oh, that guy's from my hometown. I want him to succeed, right? He yeah. can win your rival yeah. team. It's just, that's sure. just that, that ingra- ingrained, like belief exactly so northern teams beat the shit out of southern teams until the 1920s in the ncaa when players in southern high schoolers in southern high schools weren't shipping off to world war one and so the sport was becoming ingrained enough that play like high school football players will have actually like played backyard football before stepping onto the field as freshmen in high school um there's this huge come from behind win in 1925 where Alabama beats Washington in the Rose Bowl, and it legitimized all of Southern college football in one game. So I'm going to read you some of the headlines from the papers around the South the next day. Florida, A Florida newspaper said, South wins West Coast Gridiron Classic. The Atlanta Georgian proclaimed the final score to be South 20, West 19. And from the Atlanta Journal, he, the article was titled, Dixie Claims Their Heroes, and it included a line that said the game was an impressive victory for the entire South. So let's call it like it is. Alabama winning titles does reinforce like Southern supremacy and was a pushback towards like, oh, those feminine Northerners couldn't handle our Southern power, whatever. But the foundations of progressives in the South, as it was, grew, it grew because these wins from Alabama were fucking huge, dude. California loved these people and and so like i don't know if you guys are familiar with the myth of the civil war like the lost cause that like the southern armies so bravely fought for the confederacy even though they knew there was no chance and that speaks to like the character and the dignity of these guys you know what i'm talking about lost cause yeah yeah it sounds like some cope to me major cope uh like backbone of society cope um so at this at this time, an entire region moved as one and was all rooting for Alabama as one. And like I said, it was not just the old Confederate states. California, they fucking loved the Alabama players. Like when they went out there for the Rose Bowl, they were like, oh my God, these Southern boys are so cool. Um, they fucking partied in Juarez, which just sounds fun. Gamblers, especially like in the no gamblers, loved them because they made a ton of money. And... Yeah. And football started to replace the Confederate South in a lot of the, the minds. So I have this quote here from a progressive in Birmingham in 1941. Quote, the South had come by the way of football to think at last in terms of the causes they won, not lost. Pretty good, right? Okay. Yeah. So we're going to move on. I'm gonna t- I want to touch briefly on uh, stadium projects in cities here. And I don't want to argue that it's a good thing that local taxpayers foot the bill for large stadium projects, but I was reading a paper by John Siegfried and Andrew Zimbalist, and they discuss how the benefits of stadium construction exist mostly for the owners, but that a stadium is also a cultural point for those who don't even go to the games in it. 
Shane, where do you live? I live right next to where the angels play, right? Um, sorry to dox you. That's fine. I don't give a yeah. shit. Come there, Angel Town Field. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also external benefits, like like people in the local market will consume local media about a team that moves to a new city. You make cultural connections with people like coworkers, and there's an image enhancement for the entire region where people start to label it as like a major league city. And there's a corresponding increase in in value, either real or perceived. But that's a benefit, right? Like. Obviously, I don't want to talk about slumlords because they're going to fuck everything up anyways. But theoretically, you would think that there's more money going into those communities where they build those stadiums. You'd like to think so. Okay, um, I, I think there's a division here of, in good theory, before a certain time period of like late-stage capitalism compared to the, the overall argument, right? Because current day sucks ass. It does. But be- beforehand good and and there's always going to be people that move to profit off of anything anything and you know you you hope that like cities can pass rent control provisions so that no one's rent skyrockets like that but shit i'm gonna be real with you they fucking do that shit in the suburbs too so it ain't like it's exclusive to this so you can't you also though you can't deny that obviously increased jobs and theoretically the potential to reinforce prior infrastructure to help get people access to these stadiums it might not offset the tax lien but when it comes to actual cultural connectivity you can't ignore it it's important we'll we'll hop in i want to i want to talk a little Colin Kaepernick um and i'm just going to assume everyone who know everyone who listens knows who he is they know why he took a knee before games they know he was blackballed by the sport the nfl is a racist place and we know it from structure to practice racism is just built into the sport but author brett carr brings up an interesting point we have these structures within the game to limit black expression under the like we're limiting all expression creating ideas of what is or isn't sportsmanlike or professional Carr compares this to phrases like tough on crime or welfare handouts. So there's a lot of ingrained racism, not just in American society, but in football. So Kaepernick decided that not only was he going to protest, but smartly he did his protest on the field itself. The reason why this is so important and so huge is because according to Carr, the anthem being played at the beginning of the game only exists to reinforce the idea to everybody there that the social construct of America is still intact, which allows us to enjoy the game alongside people that are different than us. Sure. Like, hey, maybe this guy is a a MAGA dipshit, but for three hours, he's a Bears fan. Right. And even though I don't stand for the stupid America song, like... The people next to me do, and like we're all sitting here watching this next game together. So like like it or love it, Bear score touchdown. I'm gonna give you a high five. Right. Yeah, there is a like a camaraderie. I mean, we just went to that Bears game on Christmas Eve. I mean, felt really good when they sang that anthem and everyone's like, Yeah, let's watch some football. We're all having a good time, everyone's hanging out, right. everyone's together. Um, oh, it's like it's like the flyovers, right? Like inherently, I hate that shit. But then the caveman part of my brain is like, big thing go fast and, and loud, you, and it gets yeah. you excited, right? Right. So when Kaepernick did that on the field, it shattered the reality that, like, uh, you know, we're all in this together. 
it led to a lot of bullshit, but he really did agitate against the system and he showed the fans who, like I said earlier, make their own meaning of what this game is that like the violence against black communities doesn't just stop for seven commercial free hours every Sunday. Like it still happens. And so that to me is community building at its finest. So you take someone's preconceived ideas and you change it and then you start having discussions and people were mad but I don't think it was as bad as the media would lead us to believe. In the New York Post, according to the Post, in 2016, when Kaepernick kneeled for the anthem, public support of it was at 28%. By 2020, that ratio was 52%. That's pretty fucking good. And, and that's how these conversations start. And that's how this community building starts. And it doesn't have to be player-related. It can be fan-related, too. I want to talk a little bit about not race for a moment. And I'm getting close to the end here, so thank you guys for sticking around. Um, I don't want to turn this into a full paper yet, but I want to talk about a study done by authors uh, Brian F. Harrison and Melissa Michelson titled More Than a Game, Football Fans and Marriage Equality. I, I read the article. It's fucking great. But listen to the abstract. I just want to, it's going to make the whole point for me. So here we go. Quote, public opinion tends to be stable. Once it's formed, People's attitudes are persistent and endure over time. Attitudes towards marriage equality, however, have changed rapidly over the years. This article suggests this is partly due to people learning that other members of their own defined in-groups are supporters. They then alter their opinions to be consistent with those of the other in-group members. The authors tested this theory using a set of randomized survey experiments that shared identities as fans of professional football. When fans learned, sometimes unexpectedly, that other fans or athletes support marriage equality, they are motivated to agree in order to further normalize their membership in those sports fan groups, end quote. Okay. Pretty good. Pretty good, right? Like, yeah. hey, you know what? I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with the gays, but if you like Iowa football, and I like Iowa football, and Sam Laporta played Iowa football, maybe I'm cool oh. with the gays. So my point in writing this whole thing was not to give the NFL a free pass to be shitty. It's already given itself that pass. And every time Deshaun Watson gets a fully guaranteed contract or we have to watch, you know, Tua Tagovailoa come back a week after getting his brains fried on live television, it's not helping its case. I'm not going to defend the NFL just like how you can't defend the way Amazon treats their workers even if you buy something on Prime Day or whatever. Like, it sucks. Our system is a giant, horrible machine that runs on blood and suffering. Mm -hmm. But my goal here is to point out that football fandom is a system that we can use to build community and eventually collective action through, which is a system itself outside of football that can disrupt the larger systems that harm us. Like, you guys know how soccer fans like soccer clubs have teams like of fans and some of them are like Nazis. And then like fans of other teams are like anti-Nazis that just show up at soccer matches to beat the shit out of racists. Like, yeah, wasn't, wasn't it that like movie, the hooligans or whatever about like people that just beat the shit out of each other during the soccer games in yeah. England. Yeah. And there's really nothing stopping American sports fans from being the same way. Um, and the, like, I would consider those hooligans, the ones that are anti-fascist. Hey man, if you're punching a Nazi, I'm giving you the thumbs up. I'm liking and subscribing. They can even be a Packer fan. I, if a, if a Packer oh, fan shit. punches a Nazi dude, that's bold. 
I'll, <laughs> if you're going to punch a Nazi, hey, any any Green Bay Packers fans listening to this podcast, if you've ever punched a Nazi in the face, send us a DM on Twitter and I'll buy you a Luke Musgrave fucking jersey. All right? And a, port, and a Portillo's Italian beef. I'm not doing that, but I'll buy you a jersey. <laughs> Ryan will buy you the beef. So I'm going to close with this. I learned a long time ago that the poor, the rural, the uneducated, the less able-bodied, all of those people have more in common with me than they do the ghouls who profit off the killing of children in Palestine. They have more in common with me than the police officer does who shoots an unarmed black kid. And they have more in common with me than the systems that thrive off the blood of both. So I want to end with a challenge to our listeners, to you guys and to myself, to continue to try to build those communities and have those conversations about the world you, that you you get to get in those conversations because you you know these people, you interact with these people, you talk shit with them on Twitter. Like, you can have those conversations. I don't think it's going to change the world, but I think we can reach out to those people around us and have collaboration where we make each other better and improve the world. Maybe those toy drives and winter coat collections that these teams throw got even bigger. And those acts of solidarity start building upon each other. Like the local NFL team isn't a paragon of, of like progressiveness, but the connections we make through the game can make the world a better place. Or, and I want to end on this, you could pull a Black Sunday and fly a Goodyear blimp onto the field of the Super Bowl, setting off a nail bomb uh, that kills thousands. So that's your such, call. Such a good movie. That was a good and and hey man, free Palestine, just like you know, just like here we are. And it's funny that we were like, oh, this is a thing, and we're doing it again. So thank you guys for listening. I'm gonna build this out a little bit. Those are just some of the points I want to touch on, and I appreciate you listening and and giving me this space to kind of try it out. I hope it wasn't too long or too boring. Hey, dude, it was great, and it was better than whatever bullshit I could put together for three minutes. So, so <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I succeeded my time so you could have a platform to talk about something that's interesting and engaging, right? I know we talked about off-air bringing passion back into this, and I think that's something you're very passionate about, and I think it's a, a good reflection of you being able to articulate your ideas and our common sensibilities, but with a, a much better extrapolation. I appreciate that, guys. Thank you. So now that I've rambled and, and wrote a whole paper this week for funsies, let's talk dynasty. We made it. Football season's over. 2023, 2024, it's dynasty season. We are going to do a weekly buy-sell segment. It's your call. It's dealer's choice. Who are you buying or selling right now? And uh, Shane, since you ceded your time so kindly, uh, why don't you start and tell us who your dynasty buy-or-sell of the week is? Remember how I did 45 minutes on Anthony Richardson and an hour and a half on the Eagles? Yes. I'm going to do six hours on the Chargers. Uh -oh. um, so I'm not going to lie, though. I haven't really been tapped into like the ethos of the dynasty market in the last few months. So I'm sure this has been talked about, considering people have just like blasted through every single player in a roster, which their, what their value is and how they would buy or sell them. But today I'm going to be talking about Travis Etienne and why I'm going to sell Travis Etienne in Dynasty. Okay. I just want to say that when I was considering who I was going to do, selling Travis Etienne in Dynasty was on the list. Which is like, I thought I was being sneaky, being like, oh, he had a great year. This is a really good like pivot point to like capitalize on the market. But no, most of the market, or at least the, the things that I engage with, are in the kind of the same wavelength. I mean, they didn't articulate it. It's just a value on a calculator. Um, sure. I mean, he, he did help me win a championship, so I'm not going to like 
discredit the guy, right? I don't want to say he's a bad player. He's like theoretically lost value. But as someone who kind of watched this game, as well as watching this player and this team, I kind of want to use this as like a pivot to sell high on, quote unquote, to people who may not be like super in locked stepped with like actually engaging with the content compared to just looking at their fantasy scores of like, oh, dude put up 30 points, right? Sure. He, fin- he finishes RB5. Sick. I'm getting a great value here. So I will preface that his situation is kind of one of the best in the league, in my opinion. Like, granted, they're not a really run-heavy team, but seeing as this is a bad draft class and he isn't going to be usurped by Tank Midsby, so a bell cow role is going to kind of maintain throughout the next year um, compared to a split backfield, as well as only having $13 million in cap space this year to play with. Um, yeah. the, the threat of a veteran coming in isn't really something I'm anticipating unless someone's going to take like a giant pay cut to play here because they somehow think this team's going to win a Super Bowl. Um, so again, I think that the backfield is mainly safe for him to to have full control of that, especially yeah. as the NFL. Uh, sorry, like Ryan, who the fuck would ever think that Jacksonville would have Super Bowl odds, you know? That'd be crazy. Right? Hey, they were like 8-2 and two at one point. So like the... We were yeah. great until the wheels just started spinning. Yep. Um, so to back those claims up, I'm going to give a little bit of data because this is kind of like what I do like looking at. Um, and now that I have full focus and I can actually have tangible data in a full subsection as well as a sample size, I can actually articulate my points. Um, so I do want to talk about why he won and why his situation was good this year. So he did have the fourth most rushing attempts this past year with 267 sixth and snap and opportunity share within the position at 75%, which is an extremely high number for a running back, especially in like the modern day NFL. Yeah. And an average of 15.7 carries per game, which is fourth in the NFL. So he's in like the upper echelon of like the Nick Chubbs, Derrick Henry's. Um, and he also saw an uptick in targets from his previous years with 700 or sorry, 73 targets, which is 4.3 per game, which is like a huge number that we're always chasing for non quote unquote pass catching backs. Yep. Four targets a game, it's huge. So he finished the season with over 1,000 rushing yards, 58 receptions, and a 12% target share, sharing a room with Calvin Ridley, um, Evan Ingram, Christian Kirk, and company, with 12 touchdowns and 7th overall points per game with 16.6, which is like really, really good when you look at a points per game breakdown for a 4th yeah. like oh, or 5th fifth, fifth re, uh, redraft pick. Um so currently in startups, he's about a fifth rounder as RB7 around the likes of Jalen Waddle, Kyron Williams, Brandon Ayuk, Trey McBride, and between the 105 and 106. So that can be a range from Malik Neighbors, Brock Bowers, Romo Dunze, QB3 of your choosing, whoever you like. Um, so now that I made the case to buy, here's the case why I want to sell. Um, last year, I talked about Buffalo giving me bad vibes and Jacksonville, I'm kind of feeling the same thing of regressions in tow in my opinion um, we saw that offense sputter even though they were a top four team in the nfl at one, with one point um, with the aggression of the o-line the retaining of press taylor the draft flubs of trent balke and um, with more than likely a harder strength of schedule i personally kind of want out before their aggression hits my production when it comes to my value of the players on my dynasty teams hmm. so epa is an expected points per attempt so we of what we can assume a player can return value on fantasy point-wise per time they touch the ball. So Travis Etienne was ranked 152nd in EPA. Ugh. Disgusting. Like, literally, like, unplayable if you look at that value number. If, so I, was... if I still knew how to armpit fart, I would do that right now. 
I think he'd have to armpit diarrhea. <laughs> Show title. There it is. So he was number one in stuffed runs with 25%. So every fourth run that he had, he was stuffed at the line or took a loss on the, on the run with an, with an at, with the number 56 average defenders of the vo- the box of 5.6 or sorry, 6.5 seeing a lighter on average defensive front than most players. So with that low box number, a regressing O-line and bad play design, ETA finished the year with a 3.8 yards per carry and a 4.6 yards per attempt, which ranked 55th and 34th. And when his breakaway run rate was only 3.7%. So the lows can be extremely low. That's 3.8 yards per attempt. That's Rashad White's music. So now volume is king, but with such a heavy target share and touchdown variance, I am expecting a regression to come his way, even bearing a full healthy season. And I don't like to predict injury. I think that's a really bad thing to do. We've talked about that numerous times on this podcast, but ETN is teetering on that threshold to me of a dangerous workload for a guy who really isn't built in my opinion, to carry the ball 260 times per year, especially when they're running him up the gut for 75% of those plays. So many first and tens with inside zone up the middle with Travis Etienne where he runs directly into the back of his guard. One yard. One yard. So (laughs) I'm not panicking, and I'm I'm also not saying he should be your RB1, but if you can tear down based on the startup value I was looking at um, today, you can get... Kenneth Walker, Rasheed Rice, JSN, Debo, Mark Andrews plus. So you can get them plus a second, maybe late first within these tier breakdowns of startup costs or use the last season to someone who didn't really pay attention, like I mentioned earlier, to well, who watched the games, look at the data points, just basically sell on name recognition and point totals at the end of the year. Sure. If you want to tear up and grab a more stable asset, like a top 12 quarterback or a top end tight end, so you could probably swing for a Gibbs or potentially CMC with an age fade from a non-contender if you're looking for an RB, but and depending on like what right wide receiver you have. But personally, I'd be trying to launch into looking into like a top top eight wide receiver with Travis Etienne and a, like a pick. Sure, I would move I mean, Travis Etienne and a pick for for a top eight wide receiver in a heartbeat. Because I mean, like if you theoretically think about it, unless your team is like shit in Dynasty, you more or less likely had a winning team with Travis Etienne, or you at least made playoffs. So like your chances are high that you have 106 or later. So you can move like, especially if the tier breaks, like I don't know what we're looking at tier breaks right now, but like it seems to me again, 106 is kind of like the cliff where if you're like 107 post plus Etienne, you could like move into an upper echelon guy that you like. Would you trade Etienne in 111? For Jalen Waddle? No. Ryan? Tien, no. He's a jag. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a little double a little double entendre there. I okay. think for me, Jalen Waddle, at least as an example, I hate to like nitpick your point here, but like Jalen Waddle is another one of those nesting doll guys where they all have the same production with name value, just one gets more expensive within that tier. Where I would want again the guy who has the lowest cost to the guy who can give me the same ceiling potential you know what i mean sure, like not that i sure. don't like jalen waddle but he was the guy i pivoted off of too because i was like he's capped based on situation and he gives you the same production as it's like a t higgins like t higgins is is bloated in price to me like he should be worth a first but like am i gonna pay that kind of price for a guy who gives me the same price as some or the same points as someone else sure. more than likely not right um, i don't know like we always okay. say, I'm trying. I'm trying to win. I'm not playing for seventh. So if I'm spending my capital, my players, like I want the game breakers. I I don't think that that's a ridiculous notion in any way. Ryan, 
your dynasty play of the week, buy or sell, who you got? Guys, um, we're going mad money. Sell, sell, sell. Uh, Jake, Jake Ferguson. I love that. I, I think that's him. smart as fuck. Yep. So in his sophomore season, he quintupled in pretty much every category, like all his numbers from his rookie season and surprised a lot of us. Um, it's and surprised me because I honestly thought that Hendershot or someone else would emerge as the number one in that offense, but it ended up being the Ferguson show all year. Was Hendershot injured? For a few games. He wasn't injured a lot, but he was playing. Um, so yeah, over he had over 100, over 100 targets, 760 yards. This is the time to sell this guy because you can you can get a, you could probably get back more than he'll return. I don't I think this season would is probably going to go down as probably one of his best seasons in his career. Uh, and I think it's only regression from here, so I do think it is the time to sell right now on Jake Ferguson, especially yeah, we don't know what's going to happen with the Dallas offense. Um you know, who's going to be throwing the ball in the future. And two, like, you also have to look at, like, cost of entry for Jake Ferguson, right? Like, I can guarantee you nobody sent a, spent a draft pick on that guy. He was more than likely a fab pickup, right? He was a $5 no, fab yeah. pickup. Uh, I, in my Dynasty League, I picked him up in October of two seasons ago, 2022 season. So That's he was just on the waiver where. Yeah. I unfortunately moved him in a trade for Pat Fryermuth, which was like not exciting, but I got a bigger, better piece within that thing. So, but someone sure. I got off, off waivers for 10 bucks and I get a return of someone I like better in a package or like someone like you of potentially an early second or him plus a, an additional something to get like a late in first. Absolutely agree with you. Um, so I love it because I know what fantasy media Ryan consumes. And I know that JJ Zacharyson's not one of them. <laughs> and and so when Ryan, the tight end whisperer, says sell Jake Ferguson, the a week after I hear JJ Zacharyson list Jake Ferguson as a dynasty sell, I I I listen because look, I'm looking All at knowers. I, I'm saying, and I'm looking at his ADOT of 5.133rd among tight ends. That's a very, very low A dot. And the reason why he returned on value is because he was first among all tight ends in red zone targets. If you think that's sticky, go off. But like he's very he's gonna be touchdown dependent going forward. Yeah. And at, at some point, like that that when that red zone uh run game stops sucking ass, Jake Ferguson's not gonna keep getting those second down and four from the four yard line passes. Right. And I still, I still do think Hendershot has a chance to do some stuff in that offense too. So, sure. And I also think too, like, I hate to say it's a system, right? Like we just talked about Brock Purdy, but like, I'm pretty sure you could put any tight end in that situation, and they would return a top 15 finish. You know what I mean? Like you could yeah. pick like Johnny Smith off the street, or like uh, that cur- that quirked up white boy who was on the Pats this year, Mike Mike Gritty. Yeah. And just, and just put him in that offense, and he could return top twelve easy. Yeah, because they're the, that's the red zone target for Dak. Okay, so we've got a sell on ETN. We've got a sell on Big Ferg, gentlemen. I got a buy for you. Ooh. First, I want to compare two players, two unnamed players, real quick. Player one, 
is wide receiver 22 on keep trade cut. Last year, he had 102 targets, 79 catches, 938 yards, 7 touchdowns, an dot of 5.2 yards, Christian and, a, Kirk. and a 17% target share. Player 2, who's wide receiver 37, had 130 targets, same amount of catches, 79, had 1,002 yards, so 70 more, 62, 64 more receiving yards, three less touchdowns at four, had an ADOT of 11.9 yards, so almost six more yards, and a 20.1% target share. Player one, wide receiver 22, and this is a totally an age thing, and I get it. Player one is Rashi Rice. Player two is my bye this week, Terry McLaurin. Bye, bye, bye. So I said I'll hold for applause because I know that this is such a bold take that you'll be in awe of like how brave I'm being right now. I, I, I feel like I feel like you could play Sarah McLaughlin's like in the arms of an angel right now because I'm being so bold and so brave. Um No, I'm thinking more like I will remember you. That's a good one too. <laughs> um so so Terry's twenty eight. So to me, he's more of a buy if you're a contender with like a two to three year shelf life. But right now, his value on keep trade cut is an early 2024 second round pick. So I think he's coming at a discount. Cliff Kingsbury is back from his vacation. And I think Cliff Kingsbury is a clown. But his offense, you know for a fact that B enemy had like such a high pass rate. All the offenses that Kingsbury ran were also top 10 in pass rate. Most likely that offense is either getting a shiny new quarterback or they somehow don't and go offensive line, which I think is stupid. I think you take Drake May at pick two, but, um, you know, Sam Howell was sacked the most in the league last year, so you're definitely going to need offensive line help. Now, they have the most money to spend in the league on free agents, so I think they're going to address the offensive line pretty heavily in free agency. I think they go quarterback in the first round. So this whole offense has a big green arrow pointing up. And Terry McLaurin have a, had a 100% route participation rate last year. Who are you thinking they draft for quarterback then? Drake May. Okay. What side of the field does Terry McLaurin line up on primarily, left or right? Because if, oh, yeah, right, if, if, if he's on the right, he ain't getting any targets from Drake May. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's something I'll look up. So I'm just saying there's no early second round pick as of anything that I've seen right now. That's a lock for 120 targets. It's just not a thing. So give me the guy that's 28 at a discount with, like I said, with the green arrow pointing up for scheme, green arrow pointing up for quarterback. I, and, and really he can only go up like, he was ninth in unrealized air yards. He was 76th in the league in catchable target rate. Of his 130 targets, I think like 85 were catchable. That's not good. Um, now, Curtis Samuel, gone. Jamison Crowder, gone. Who? Byron Pringle, gone. Who? McLaurin's target competition is Jaden Reed. Sorry, I mean Jahan Dotson. And uh, Logan Thomas in a non-Eric B enemy offense. So yeah, they're going to... Logan Thomas is probably gone too. Well, he's he's expensive, but he's under contract and 
Uh, they have that much money that I don't think they need to cut him. Okay. Uh, but shout out to Walker. I think Walker's on Cole Turner gang, so we'll see. Antonio Gibson, gone. So there's going to be even more targets in this offense. And let's just look at it. what it is. McLaurin is an alpha on a high-volume passing attack that should improve come the draft. I think you could buy now if you're in win-now mode. Or, you know, you, you grab him for an early second that could improve to a late first if if he, you know, starts off hot and, and you return value on that. So my buy this week is Terry McLaurin. Is this us? Uh, pitching our product for Dynasty together if they listen to this podcast of like, hey, please, I know our team is ass. Please buy Terry McLaurin off of us. No, because I think I think Terry McLaurin is going to be worth more. So if okay. we're trying to ship, guys, like we have a lot of commanders, and honestly, I'm going to be real with you in that in that uh, Superflex Dynasty we did the startup for. They're Bounce not the ones coming, but they're not the ones that sunk us, bro. Yeah, like Brian Robinson played pretty well this yeah. year i guess so i got two things right you mentioned antonio gibson and my panic attack brain just set in he's going to the jags i can already see it just because i mentioned oh, that no it's no going to that no. team so, oh. so gibby's gibby's gonna be a jag and second point terry mclaurin or mike evans in dynasty terry mclaurin oh shit is this the first season that uh evans doesn't have a thousand yard season I think it's like Patrick Mahomes. You got to chop his leg off for that shit not to happen. <laughs> I think he'll probably get another thousand yard season, but I also think Terry could put up twelve hundred and score okay. more. Like, because I I got burned by that last year, and I'll always remember Waleed saying, "I I don't know why you don't like Mike Evans, uh, but because he was with Baker, we didn't know how dog, Baker was going to do." But nobody but likes whatever. Tampa Bay. If you said you like Tampa Bay, you're full of shit. Right. Yeah. Also, Mike, it, Mike Evans is going to be 31 this year. So, the, okay. the the biggest lies on earth in the fantasy football community were CJ Stroud was my QB one, and I didn't fade Tampa Bay players this year. Sure, right. I I I talked Rashad White in the offseason. That's like the closest I got to coming anywhere near <laughs> that Tampa Bay offense being correct. I did. I I fucked with Kate Otten. Yeah, made the most logical sense because you're like, well, it's gonna be shit, so they're just gonna run the whole time. Rashad White will at least get some yards. Oh, they can't pass the ball. Check down city. Guess what happened? Right. Check down city. Yep. And Mike Evans. So yeah. So we've uh I lectured. I had a lecture. Um we we did some dynasty buys and sells. We talked our Super Bowl shit. Season's dead, season's over, dead and buried. Now that that's done, funeral's over. Ryan? Where are we going, baby? Let's take a trip. All right, guys. This week, we're going to the Hollywood of the North, the place in Canada that has the highest house, average household income. Guys, let's go to Vancouver, British Columbia. All right. Okay. I got friends in Vancouver. You have to make buku bucks to afford a house yeah. there now. Dude, so they split the... garages. <laughs> yeah, it, it's fucking bad. You know what's worse is Tofino. Tofino's an island, and that shit's like five hundred grand for five hundred grand for a house minimum. <laughs> yep. Yeah, as the average income in this uh, city is you know one hundred twenty thousand Canadian dollars. Now that's only like thirty thousand US. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's one hundred. 
they're the average people up there make six figures, and that's that's pretty crazy when you figure you know the average in America is what forty or fifty, probably lower than that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's a pretty affluent city. They're known as the Hollywood of the North because a lot of uh, TV productions from our Hollywood in the U.S. go up there because they can avoid certain taxes and stuff's a lot cheaper. And they just they can do things for cheaper and then line the pockets of the executives even more. So naturally, there's a lot of um, actors and stuff from the city. People, a lot of Canadian famous actors we'll get to in a little bit. Um, they have uh, Stanley Park, which is actually 10% bigger than Central Park in New York City. It's great. I I don't know how this is possible because I, I, I would think on the West Coast you'd still have squirrels. But apparently all the squirrels that are in that park came from eight pairs of squirrels that were given to that park by New York City. Yeah. Um, I I would think there's squirrels everywhere in North America, right? I, I don't know. Maybe just in that park, but you would think that they'd have some type of ground squirrels out there. I don't know. Enough about squirrels. Um, I love I love squirrels. I could talk squirrels all day. So you remember yesterday, Tony? Uh, what were we saying? But they have like the largest uh, whatever we were talking about cities and how they have the largest. Yeah. So this city has this city has the largest tin soldier. In the world, fuck, it's nine point seven meters tall. I'm an American, so I don't know how tall that is. What is that times three? It's uh, like thirty thousand dollars. Yeah, it's like thirty thousand feet, thirty-two um, feet. That's <laughs> fine. And it weighs uh, four thousand five hundred and forty kilograms. Okay, so divide that by two point two zero four six. That's like. <laughs> I don't know, uh, no, no, I know that conversion. It's 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 two point two zero four six to convert kilograms to uh, pounds. It has like we we were talking about the highest real estate um, of all Canada. It rains an average of one hundred and sixty five days a year there. Hell yeah! Also, because this is the Hollywood of the North, Botox was invented there. Actually, sick. I will say right? I don't mean to like cut you off here, but like. The comparison of beautiful women to ugly men in Canada or Vancouver is like five to one. Yeah, of like of walking around, I was really? like, there are there are so many attractive females and so many goblin looking men up here. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was a surprising fact when I when I first read it. Um, you would think like a lot of like cruise ship terminal, like big heavy lanes would be like Caribbean or Florida, um, southern parts, but actually. Vancouver is the fourth largest cruise ship terminal in the world. Fuck yeah. With a lot of their cruises going uh, and exploring Alaska and stuff like that. It's also uh, the biggest uh, like trade port in the entire uh, country of Canada and the third largest in North America outside of, I believe, New York and L.A. They do more like all the trade for Canada that comes from like Asia goes through Vancouver port. Um, there's no sense in sending it down through the Panama canal to go back up to like St. John's and get it over there. They just go straight across the Pacific and then truck it sure. um, with the trans, with the trans Canadian highways, the, the California, I forgot the California roll. All right. Not invented in California, invented in Vancouver. 
Disgusting. Right. Fucking disgusting. Yep. By Chef Hidekuzu Tojo. Uh, okay. Still has least, his... Okay, fair. What? I pronounced it right. He did. I was going to say these white boys love their cream cheese. Put this bitch in there. Yeah. It's true. He still, he still has a restaurant, Shane. So next time you go up to visit your friends in Vancouver, check out uh, Chef Tojo's restaurant and get an original California roll in Canada. Hell yeah. That's right. And I'm sure you get like you get like a bonus because you're actually from California and they feel bad for appropriating your culture. <laughs> I'm white and I'm from California, dude. I gotta get a two for one special up in there. You bet. Oh, they're they have the first ever um covered stadium that to be built in like Canada. It has a retractable roof. The BC place is a retractable roof, uh seventy five hundred square meters. Oh, it's the okay. largest in the world. Jesus. That's where the Lions play. There's right? gotta be one. There's gotta be so. one. It's a cool looking stadium. I haven't been in there, but I've walked past it. It's pretty nice. Really? Dude, Vancouver kicks ass. I've been there. It's fucking rules. I've always wanted to go there. There's a lot of really cool, like um Native American culture too. One of the tribes like I really liked growing up was the Haida tribe. And they're from like that Vancouver area. With they were the ones that make like all those really cover uh colorful like totem poles and stuff. Yeah, oh they're yeah. All over, they're all over Stanley Park. They're cool. Yep. Dude, I went yeah, to yeah. a I went to an indigenous art museum when I was in Vancouver. And oh, really? th- they did a really good job of being like, hey, we killed those people. We're sorry. They take a really good ownership of it because I had zero concepts of that. And then was it, did you go to the one in Whistler? Uh, I went to the one that's like right next to the fucking ocean. Okay. I didn't go to that one, but I, I, I'm glad there's more than one, right? Like, hey, did yeah, you go to this yeah. one sing- singular spot? But yeah, we had like a 45 minute ride back from Whistler down to Vancouver. And I was like, oh, here's my American brain just getting lambasted over the atrocities. People are like, hey, we fucked up. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it doesn't justify shit, but like, correct? At least, yes, at least correct. they're like, here's the culture that our fucking dumbasses ruined. Yeah, right. So yeah, that's one of the reasons I've always wanted to go there. Um, but yeah, so let's talk about some people from Vancouver. Okay. Like I said, there's a lot of there's a lot of celebrities from this city. Let's see, celebrities. We got uh, Pam Anderson was born here. Yes, Nathan Fielder. You remember the guy from Nathan for you? Oh, dude, yeah. Is from is from BC. How have you, Shane? Have you seen his new show? No, I don't. I can't engage with that kind of content. It's hard for my brain. Sure, um, because the show he did uh, for HBO was fucking excellent. Oh, is this the one with Emma Stone? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I think my friend worked on that show because it was filmed in Albuquerque. Okay, I heard great things. All right, sorry about that, Ryan. I, I'll uh, I'll talk about no, Nathan no Fiedler forever. <laughs> We've got um, Evan Goldberg, who we all know is Seth Rogen's writer friend, who wrote all those movies like Superbad and stuff. And because he is friends with Seth Rogen, Seth Rogen is also from Vancouver. Not surprised. Like the Shane said, beautiful women, goblin men. <laughs> Seth Rogen's a fucking goblin. We got Josh Jackson. Famous child actor from Mighty Ducks, D2 Mighty Ducks, Dawson's Creek. Shit. Yeah. Uh, Kobe Smulders, uh, Marvel movies, uh, How We Met Your Mother. She's from here. Let's see. Oh, 
Tony's favorite drummer, the drummer uh, Daniel Adair. He's the drummer for Nickelback and Three Doors Down. Fuck, double duty. Shit. Yeah. How do you hit both of those? That's wild. Uh, he's a Superman, I guess. Get it? Nickelback, by the way. <laughs> Nickelback, <laughs> underrated. And also, shout out to Pat Finnerty. Um, the main riff to try that in a small town is basically just a slowed down version of the other Three Doors Down song that's not Kryptonite. <laughs> right. Um, how about some sports players? We've got Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, current player for the Edmonton Oilers. Carey uh, right. Price, goaltender for Montreal. Milan Lucic, uh, former NHL player. We've got Chicago Blackhawks great who came back for his first game last night from his jaw injury. Connor Bedard is from BC. Yep. Who else we got? Evander Kane, not Patrick Kane. Patrick Kane's from Buffalo. Evander Kane, um, current, I think he's on San Jose Sharks right now. Oh, Larry Walker. Remember that, that guy in like the 90s who hit like 400 that one season? Yes. He's from BC. Damn. Ryan Dempster, uh, for, uh, former MLB pitcher. <laughs> I liked him. Uh, the guy that I profiled earlier, Teo Johnson. Not Theo Johnson. Teo Johnson from BC. I missed some celebrities here. Who else we got? Will Sasso's from uh, here. Cool. Um, Michael Buble. Sick. Uh, the guy who created X-Files, Chris Carter, and that's also where they filmed X-Files was in Vancouver. Small, okay. interesting film fact. I loved X-Files when I was younger. I grew up watching it, so I knew all these facts about it. Thomas Middleditch, the the main character from Silicon Valley and a bunch of those commercials. Um, Nelly Furtado. Yes, girl. Yes. We've got Carrie Ann Moss, the Matrix uh, white lady. Um, again, again, another right. beautiful woman. Yes. Um, Taylor Kitsch. Uh, he, I try to. I tried to remember what he was in. The only thing I really remember him is in a couple movies, and uh, he was Riggins in Friday Night Lights. Okay. Um, uh, I have. I have to follow uh, Shane's theory here. Uh, I have a beautiful woman and a hideous man. Um, the be- beautiful and talented, incredibly talented woman mm-hmm. is motherfucking Carly Rae Jepsen. Okay. Fucking awesome. Um, puts out banger after banger. And in terms of weird, weird ass looking dudes, fucking Nardwar. <laughs> hey, yeah, Nardwar, I saw Nardwar that. is I pure saw that, though. Yeah. <laughs> Nardwar rules. There's, um, we're not questioning Nardwar in any way whatsoever. He's the chaotic good goblin, right? Yeah, totally. Sure. I did miss one, probably the most important celebrity. Uh, so we'll end with him. Uh, he, I don't, you know, he's a big movie star, but, you know, he's famous for owning a soccer team right now. Mr. Ryan Reynolds is from Vancouver. Oh, no shit. We got, we got one attractive man. <laughs> so shout out Ryan Reynolds. He took all of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, Vancouver. Um, I got, before we go, Sister Cities, baby. Oh, that's right. Uh, we've got Odessa, Ukraine. Really? We've got, yep, 1944. We've got Yokohama, Japan, Sister City. Of course. To Vancouver. There's, always, there's always one in Japan. And actually, 
that's another reason why I wanted to go to uh, not to Japan to Vancouver is because the uh, Japanese society like is really involved in the, like their cooking and stuff. They're supposed to have like really good food. Yeah, um, China, the Guangzhou is just north of Hong Kong, sister city with Vancouver, and then L.A. is their sister city in America. Pretty solid. LA. Yep, and. One of the only other places out of the country that I've been, uh, Edinburgh, Scotland. Oh, wow. Solid. That's That's another solid get. Like, I think that's Vancouver punching above their weight class. I would figure to be Toronto. You know what I mean? I think I spent like 20 minutes in Toronto and I was like, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) I love Vancouver. I'd go back anytime. I would go back anytime. Hell yeah. All right, so we are running long, which is great because it's been an awesome episode, and um, we're getting closer to Dynasty Drafts. We're going to do Rookie Mocks. We've got a combine coming up next week. You can expect some bits. You can expect some Dynasty buys and sells and a little prospect roundtable as well as another trip. So uh, let's just put a little bow on the 2023-24 football season. Give me like one final take. Give me your one takeaway from the season. Just just shoot it from the hip. We don't know shit. The Detroit Lions, Lions, who were we thought they were? Who you thought they were. Or I thought they were. I am. (laughs) My, my, (laughs) My takeaway is... Don't rule out any team. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I think we've uh, fucking flagellated <laughs> ourselves enough on that. I think we just let it go. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing to remember. And also, scheme means everything. So, yeah. 2023, we barely knew ye. Yeah, fuck you. Go away. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> um, to, to on to better things. So, let's... The work starts now. Uh, Thank you guys for sticking around with us, and we'll see you next week. So good night. Have a great weekend. Peace. Good night.